0: Hey, hey, everybody. It is Tim Gillette, and we're back here with another Tim Gillette show. You know what that means? That means I found somebody else on the planet who's really cool, all right, and it has got some awesome stuff. They're doing awesome stuff. They've done awesome stuff, and they've decided to come by on here and share with you their awesomeness. From business owners to authors to speakers to all kinds of things, ladies and gentlemen, they are the people who come here to share their story with you. Today's guest is no different. He's a cool guy, all right? He's got a cool story, got some cool things going on in his life, all right? He's got some good standards and some good, shall we say, morals? I don't know. Maybe we can call him that. We'll have to ask him as we get to talk to him. Jeff Morrill is our guest today. Let's bring him up here and see if he wants to be part of the Tim Gillette Show. How are you, Jeff?
1: Hey, good. Thanks, Tim. Good to know you. Yeah, man. So, uh, you know,
0: I, I first of all, I, I was trying to research what part of the country are you in?
1: So the businesses that, that we built are right outside of Boston, just south of Boston. The Probably the most famous of them, the retail business anyway, is Planet Subaru in Hanover, Massachusetts. But I actually live in Charlottesville, Virginia. Okay. Um, I grew up in Virginia, and my wife and I moved uh, up with my brother in 1998 to open the first business in Boston. And by 2018, after 20 years of uh, business building, I was ready to to uh, downshift and, and start living again. And okay. so here I am back in, so, back in Virginia.
0: So you were in Boston in the automotive industry. I'm going to say a name that's going to make you go, yep, I know that family.
1: The Atamian okay. family. Ah, the Atamians out of Worcester. Yes, they have a bunch of dealerships. Do they still? Are they I still don't know. Home? I
0: worked for the Atamian family at their VW and Honda dealer in 1987 in Tewksbury, Massachusetts.
1: Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So I'm I'm remembering, because I'm trying to, I don't know if they, they may have sold their stores or rebranded them, because I'm trying to remember the last time I heard of an Atamian yeah. store.
0: But. Yeah. But, but you, yeah, but, but in the, in the, in the auto industry in New England, you know the name Atamian oh, because they were known as automotive. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. All the, all the groups. I mean, there aren't, aren't so many of them that you wouldn't you wouldn't run into those uh, folks from time to time.
0: But yeah. And then in the auto industry, I worked for uh, when I, my first car job was for a company called J.L. Freed Sons in Lansdale, Pennsylvania, and they were the oldest Cadillac dealer in America. When I worked for them, I don't even know if they sell Cadillacs anymore. They because they had Cadillacs, Pontiacs and I think Hondas at the time. And I think they're just a Honda dealer now. I don't even think they have, because they're not even the same in the same location. But yeah, I got started in in the auto industry. I worked for them. I worked for the Penske family. (laughs) So I've worked for a few well-known automotive industries. That's great. You're going to
1: know a lot about the the conventional expectations of a a car dealership.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, and it's interesting that, that, uh, you know, it's very rarely that I get someone on my podcast who's like, had auto business in the same part of the country i have so this is going to be an interesting podcast today <laughs> okay, so far away yeah so you were up in new england you started an automotive pro was dealership right yeah okay uh in 98 you said that's right all right uh what made you go to new england to start a car dealership
1: so one of the things i encourage entrepreneurs is, is to take a similar approach to what my brother and I did, which was, we were both working for someone else. And we knew we wanted eventually to own our own business together, hopefully, because we get along really well, or at least we did at that time and still do. And, and so my thought is, you you try to move closer by a step every day. Mm-hmm. So I started looking in the back of Automotive News, which is in a print uh, print publication. Now it's, it's mostly online, but They used to put dealerships for sale in the classified section. So I just started picking up the phone and calling and, and we would have gone anywhere. We were at that time in our lives where we could have gone to, we were looking at some dealerships in Colorado, as I recall. There's one in Maine, Um, maybe some others too. It's been so long, I don't remember, but we just started making calls. Most were dead ends. Most of them didn't even want to talk to us because we didn't already own a dealership. And, and then, and, and even more so now, generally people, Prefer to to sell their stores to the shore thing, so they don't have to worry about closing getting blown up at the last minute by by financing issues or something like that. But anyway, 20 years ago, you could you could just call people up and they were looking to sell their stores, and, and eventually we we found one that um, needed to be sold quickly because the owners had bankrupted it and they needed to get out from under the lease. Mm-hmm. The, the company didn't have any value, but they were on the hook for for another two and a half years of a. $25,000 a month lease that they needed someone else to assume. So mm-hmm. that's how, how we got our start with, with relatively uh, small amounts of capital because we were able to buy the business for for just the cost of the, the modest assets, the desks, the furniture, the shop tools, those kinds of things.
0: Interesting because, you know, in 1987 and 88, I wanted to go into the automotive and I, I couldn't, I never, um, I wanted to go into my own dealership and stuff like that. I wanted to have my own gas stations. And I never was able to, I didn't have the smarts. First of all, I just had to study for years to figure it out and never would have thought to get on the phone and try to work out deals with people on a big dealership. Now, eventually I would have like a small used car dealership, auto body shops and stuff like that. But I never was on the scale of opening a big dealer. Um, I guess you and your brother had a little more confidence than I did when yeah, in my
1: 20s. Yeah. Confidence or or maybe we were just a little crazy. Yeah. What we did have going for us and another recommendation for, for entrepreneurs is to try to find that that easy step from what you're doing into what you want to do. So my brother was working for Ford Motor Company at the time. So he had mm-hmm. that experience and I was uh, working. In a, in a dealership where I had coincidentally started right out of college. And I, I wasn't looking to go into the car business. I ended up there accidentally because a politician I worked for in college happened to own a car dealership. And when I graduated and couldn't find a job, he, he took me, he took pity on me, and employed me in the service department as a service advisor. So I ended up in the car business accidentally with my brother too. He on the wholesale side, me on the retail side. But obviously it made sense for us to to use the skills we had gained in that field to, to buy a business. It would have made less sense for us to go into the wine business or something mm-hmm, like yeah, that, yeah. you know, that we knew nothing about. So,
0: uh, and, and I find it interesting because I've worked out uh, now, I, I didn't own a business in Massachusetts and New Hampshire when I was up there. I was, I grew up in the, in the Poconos of Pennsylvania. But while I was in New England, I worked for automotive companies. I worked for Midas. I worked for the for the family. I worked for several different uh, you know other dealerships and stuff while I was up there. Um, but like the, that that journey of going through that to, to start a business of my own, I wouldn't. I would. I would go back to Pennsylvania, and it wouldn't be uh, until someone basically would hit me with a multi level marketing thing, and it finally awoken into me. Yeah, I I want to own my business again. I, I don't want to work for somebody else. I mean, I, I and at the time, then I had a wife and a kid and mounds of debt from all the cars that I bought trying to look cool.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: I assume you guys were were in a little better position uh, to be able to get the financing and go into something like this.
1: Yeah, it was very difficult to. Uh, we ended up borrowing from family, and just to, to tell you the, the numbers we needed about $600,000 to capitalize the dealership in 1998. That, that number is quite a bit bigger now, but, but it's comparable to maybe what it would would take to capitalize a a site, uh, like a a construction business, like a a general contracting business or a site uh, where they call it site work business with Mm -hmm. the the tractors and things like that. So with that, um, we borrowed, as I recall about, um, 200 from from an uncle, 200 from my dad, and my brother and I had 200. So, without the family being able to get us into the the business capital, I don't think we would have been able to do it. Uh, Once we had that, we were able to get an inventory loan because you know the cars are millions of dollars that you need to have on the lot even back then. And so we were able to find one exactly one bank out of, of many who turned us down who was willing to do it. It's not a really risky loan on the inventory for a bank because if in the event that the business fails, then they can just take their cars back, the collateral's right there. What we found, and I think this is still the case, what's hard to do is get a working capital loan, that $600,000 that we needed to um, to buy the, the assets that as I spoke before to pay the small amount of, of blue sky or goodwill, the actual business value that the owners that were selling it to. That that money, banks don't want to lend you that because if it disappears, there's nothing left. They have no real yeah. estate, they have no inventory, they're just out. So, so it was really crucial. And and I'm always the first to point out that that even though we're first generation business people, my dad was a teacher and my mom was a bank teller, we benefited significantly from having you know that those retirement accounts in the family that we could borrow from, and and I don't know how we could have done it without that. It would have, um, I think we would have gotten into business. We would have just had to, to do it a little more slowly and maybe uh, jump into a smaller pool.
0: Probably would have had to go the route like I went. I I never um, I never had access to that kind of capital is why I had smaller businesses along the way. But that's a, a, a going subject, all right, for even my clients and your clients to this day uh, of raising capital to start a business is not always an easy thing to do, all right? If someone came to you today and say, well, you know, Jeff, I want to go do that today. What advice would you give them? Or would you say, dude, uh, you know, just get a job?
1: My, you know, it's funny. You might, this might not be the answer you'd expect, but I'm a big fan of blue collar businesses. I'm in one. And, you know, I grew up in a university town in rural Virginia. It's actually Blacksburg, Virginia, where Virginia Tech is. And, you Mm -hmm. know, all my friends ended up going on and getting master's degrees and PhDs and you know, educationally, I, I slummed it pretty hard, but I think I saw a lot of opportunity in in the kind of businesses where people actually do something, where you build a product. I generally don't recommend, and and uh, I'm not saying you shouldn't do it, but I personally recommend those businesses like, um, you know, like coaching and those kinds of things that are easy to start, or even being like a realtor because the competition is they just it's just the cost of entry is relatively low. It's just hard to get that get cranked up takes a lot of time over 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 maybe even decades to build up that business but but blue-collar businesses and, and with that I'd include like landscaping companies plumbing companies electrical supply sales I mean they're they're not particularly glamorous and they don't come with a lot of glory um, but their their businesses that actually employ people which I think is good for society and I think they produce things of value to people if you're a plumber yeah, when your pipes leak, I mean, you need someone who's capable of, of getting that fixed, and and uh, there's a lot of opportunity in those fields, and yeah. and so and you can start them for for relatively small amounts of capital if you already have the skills. Yeah,
0: and and I and I find that to be true. I mean, I my last business was mobile car washes here in Dallas, Texas, and mobile car washes wasn't that hard to start up. When I scaled it, is what costs money. All right, and. <laughs> The And most people, they look into starting it as their hardest thing. They don't realize that as you grew, about three or four years into it, was it now easier to scale it, easier to get loans, easier to to keep going when you actually had a history of success?
1: Yeah, I think that's really important, that, that idea. Well, not only that, but you also have the expertise that you've won the hard way, the hard-won knowledge that you've obtained by actually being in that industry and seeing what's realistic. You know. And, and sometimes what you think, you know, my uh, stepfather originally got into a landscaping business. And by the end, he was doing he was cleaning parking lots. Mm-hmm. So and he, he discovered that there's just it was less competition in cleaning parking lots in the area of Virginia where he was. And it just it, it's something he discovered. And then you can buy the equipment. By the time he had figured this out, he, he was able because of the track record, and because of the, uh, the cash flow of the business, he was actually able to get the loan for the fairly expensive trucks that it takes to clean, clean the parking lot. So Mm -hmm. there is, there is a lot of benefit to, to, um, to, to taking it slow, I guess. And I'm, I'm generally, I generally try to discourage people from looking for the quick buck. If you want to go into business, I think you should, should plan on it taking a minimum of 10 years. Yeah. And, and, um, and that isn't to say you can't get something up and running that will, that will generate income for you and, and allow you to make a living. It's just for it to really be uh, productive. I mean, in, in just because you're in it 10 years doesn't guarantee that, but it just takes a long time. And part of that, just because of our tax code, um, without getting too much into it, you just think about, you know that I remember the first year we made a million dollars at, at Planet Subaru. I was like, wow, we're rich. But then, you know, between state and federal taxes, you've got to pay uh, by April of the next year, roughly half of that. So half of it disappears. And my brother and I were living, you know, not the high life, but if we were taking out $100,000 each at that time, that left three hundred, And mm-hmm. we had millions of dollars a day. So it just takes years yeah. to pay yeah. that down and to grow the business. And I think it's important that, that people understand that it's it's going to be a long haul. And it can be very rewarding, but it's not going to happen fast. I mean, yeah. unless you get lucky and bomb the lightning, you know.
0: Yeah, I mean, when I sold my car wash business, the amount of money I got, for the business versus how much money I kept in my bank account was a whole different story. <laughs> and yeah, uh, you know, and some people don't look at that. Like, I mean, yeah, I had a great successful business, but it was relying on a lot of debt, revolving debt in order to keep it going. And that's what most people, I don't think when they look at that scale to type business, they're not really seriously looking at that. But I do like your advice of the, you know, the blue collar type businesses, um, I'm a big fan of micro, all right. I love micro and I love like some of the stuff he tells people. you know, start with a trade, you know there's nothing you don't have to get you know a doctorate I'm not a college educated guy, and um, I tried going once <laughs> i couldn't even get an associates I'm not someone to sit and take that type work however give me the give me the skills of of go out and create a business. I can go do it. I can figure out how to get things going and create a business. Um, I can figure out how to turn anything into a profit for someone. That's how I got into the consulting end. Are you now in consulting end, helping people with that?
1: I guess in a in a totally uncompensated way. I, I don't actually have consulting clients, but a little bit of background. So the businesses, you know, I was in it for 20 years, and and they generate uh, about a last year about 130 million dollars in revenue. And of course, that's. Sales, not profit, but, but even a small percentage of that as profit is enough to uh, to create a pretty pretty uh, comfortable life. So mm-hmm. uh, I have a management team that runs the businesses, and I have the, the time available now to do other things. So I started with the book um, a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. and that's been sort of the platform to share the ideas in it. Mm-hmm. And so I don't, I mean, I'd be happy to to, if someone had questions, you know, when I, some of the trades people that that I work with at this property that that I own where my home is now, you know, when they want to spend a lunch with me and talk about their growth plans, so I'm happy to talk with them. But but I don't know that I'm particularly skilled. I think it's a particular skill set it takes to coach Mm -hmm. and consult. I've never developed that. Uh, What I have is just a lot of experience, uh, learned the hard way doing what we did, I tried to include that in, in the book profit wise. Mm-hmm. And and also um, it, it's a particular point I'm trying to, to share And you know, we can dive in just the contents of the book that the mission that I wanted to share, the, the aspiration I have is to make sure that people understand that they can, they can solve problems in their communities and, and uh, make their corner of the world a little better at the same time that they're earning a really good living, that they don't have to be mutually exclusive. And you know, I talk about that broadly in the first chapter about how, how, how it's morally um, admirable to, to pursue that that kind of thing in your business but but the rest of the book is devoted to specifically how you do that from from hiring to marketing all, all those things that you you need in a small medium-sized business to actually make sure you can make payroll and, and earn a, a profit uh, commensurate with the amount of effort and and uh, life force that you're pouring into that business but also you know help people out too along the way
0: now, when, when you come up with the idea to write the book, all right, uh, was this something that was way on your heart? Like, I've got I've to share that. I've got to put this information down on paper so it's here for the next generation, or was it something that someone said, you know, Jeff, you got a lot of wisdom there, all right? I want you to write a book, and then I'm going to get you on speaking tour, and what was your motivation in doing it?
1: Yeah, so I was in a terrible mountain bike accident in 2018 right after we moved to Virginia, actually. I dreamed of of getting out there in the woods and riding after all those years spent under fluorescent lights working my butt off. And uh, I finally got the chance, you should be careful what you wish for, because I, I barely escaped that, that wreck with my life. But I had a lot of time on the couch, um, immobilized for many months after that accident. And in all the lessons that I learned over the years, I'd, I'd always wanted to write a book, and they were in my head. But, but there's a big difference between having what you think is is a book inside your mind and then actually putting it out on paper. So those of the several months of, of being cooped up in the house gave me the chance, really an unprecedented and, and hopefully never to be repeated opportunity to not leave the house and focus exclusively on writing the book. Mm-hmm. And, and the book was actually, I wrote it for our team, actually, mm-hmm. and, and the point was not to publish it. And the reason I wrote it for, for our team is because I wasn't there every day like I used to be to, to, to shape the direction of the company, to make sure that I was meeting every person that we brought on the team and having all that influence I used to. So I want to make sure that those ideas, that the vision that I'd had and that my brother shared and that we had executed on over the years survived my departure yeah, and yeah. would survive my departure from the world after I'm gone. So I, I originally wrote it for them, and then and then after it was done, I I realized that there was something more substantial that maybe other other business owners or aspiring business owners could could appreciate in the book. So that's when uh, I I found a publisher, which was no easy feat uh, nowadays. Yeah. Publishing a book is, um, you know, the writing it. Let's just say is the easy part. You know, finding a, a publisher to, to roll the dice on a, on a first time author is, is the harder part, but that's how it came to be.
0: You didn't, you didn't self-publish. You went with a, you went with a traditional publisher.
1: Yeah. My concern about self-publishing was that I didn't have the expertise in that field. And, and what I've learned is that that I'm not very good at things that I don't know how to do. <laughs> and uh, I have a lot of confidence to do things that I have experience with. And, and, yeah. If I had any kind of related experience, maybe I would have been willing to do it. But I'm I'm not a professional writer. I, I don't have that experience. Um, so I needed I needed editing help. I needed you know just strategic help with, with how to set the book up so that people would, would actually benefit from it, and not mm-hmm. not feel like it was just another business book, death by platitude experience. Yeah. So uh, I just needed all that help. So that's why I worked so hard to find a publisher. Like I said. You know, the first, first time author, it's it's very difficult. Very to find tough. One, but, very very tough. But yeah. I, I found one that, that really understood what I was trying to do. TCK Publishing, is name. It's mm-hmm. a small firm, and and they they specialize in in the kind of book that I wrote.
0: Yeah, I know. Yeah, well, we, all the stuff to go with the book. I mean, I, I I finished my book and and got it out there, and uh, yeah. I, I I I still think my my poor English teacher from high school rolled over in their grave and went, "Oh my god, if Gillette can write a book, oh my god, they the world's going downhill."
1: <laughs> Cuz I'm I am ex-
0: not an English guy.
1: I'm curious the experience you had through, you know, getting it published and rolling it out and sharing it with people. What what um I you know, I've, I have a – data set of one on this, which is my own book. And I'm interested to learn about your experience briefly, not to hijack your podcast. No, no. um, Actually, I
0: self-published my first book, which is this one over here. Um, And that has nothing to do with my business. That was just a coach of mine said, you want to be a speaker, you got to have a book to get on stage. Okay. I took three weeks and wrote the book. (laughs)
1: Oh, wow.
0: It took me eight eight months to publish it. (laughs) Um, I went with a hybrid publishing company, which is basically... They, they have all the aspects of self-publish, but, they, have the, but, but they, don't, they don't market. They don't distribute for you, but they set it up. So if you took the scan code off the back of my book and, and, uh, or, or if it was left, say, sitting at a Barnes & Noble, and someone picked it up and they took it to the front and they scanned it, it's in Barnes & Noble's system. Mm-hmm. So that's what the hybrid publisher was able to do for me. And then they charged me by how many I need to print. I need to, I, I put an order in for a hundred books. Great. They ship me a hundred books. You know what I mean? Uh, 5,000 books, they ship them to me. And that was the advantage I had to do it. I have done other books now, uh, compilation books. I have two others that are just mine. And I'm currently writing a, a fourth one that is mine. But compilation books, I've been in a, at least two dozen of those, I'm like six or seven time, number one Amazon best seller type thing, but I, I don't hold credibility that because they were all like joint published type books. It's a great title to hold, all right? To me, it means nothing, but it gets me on stages as a speaker. The process, yeah, sure. yeah the process of doing it, which is, you know, say it's 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 write it, all right, edit it, format it, all right, and print it. That That's, when I broke it down that simply, I got it done, and uh, I know, I know. One of the courses I teach in my program is simple, easy books, and that is writing your book out by a blog post at a time, and then yeah, right. put them all together and publish it. So, but it's it's a process for everyone. And my coach, the guy who actually got me to do that book, who's also got me to do my trademark and all kinds of other things throughout the years, he got a he's done both self published and traditional publishing his self publishing he put out like he wrote like four books in 9 weeks once and then he created a course called how to write a book in 30 days and that's how i figured out how to do that all right I and see. it was it, yeah, it was all self type stuff but then he went the traditional publishing route to do a book because he he worked for the band guns and roses so he wanted to tell his story and he still says to this day he, he regrets doing it but it, it was the only story he had that a traditional publisher would pick up now, yeah, yeah, right. And that's that's it. Having a having a, a story that a traditional publisher pick up. They don't because they, they do. They, they look at a business book and like, mm, I don't know if I want to do that. You know, they, they everybody thinks they're Tim Ferriss and 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 Robert Kiyosaki when it comes to business books. When the truth is, most of us are 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 probably Seth Godin, who's published millions of his own books. Some of us know who Seth Godin is, but the truth is, is Seth Godin's got more books out there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and a multi million copy selling author, Seth Godin, is so, so his formula works clearly. I think it the conventional wisdom on books nowadays is that you certainly don't want to do it for the money. It's got to serve some other purpose in terms of, like you were saying, promoting your speaking or your coaching. Or in my case, it was just a, a way for me to, to um, give me a platform to, to share the ideas in it that I wouldn't have otherwise had.
0: Well, I I do like, Jeff, you mentioned that, you know what I mean? When I wrote this, I was writing it for my team. And almost always, you know, I've taught in speaking or writing or communication. You know what I mean? Pick that person that you're talking to. My blogs, 90% of them, it's some person I was thinking about. And you picked your team and said, I'm writing this to my team, which is going to make that an impactful book for me to pick up and not be part of your team because you had heart in doing it. All right. Yeah. Uh, and that's what most people, they don't have, you know what I mean? A lot of people come on my podcast. They don't have the heart. They're just like, how do I be successful at this? Get, yeah. some, get some heart behind
1: what you're doing, you know? Yeah. And mine is an interesting case as an author too, because I'll tell you one of the, the greatest things about having businesses that, that do well and, and having a management team that can run them for you is that it gives you so much freedom. And mm-hmm. so I could write, I, I didn't need to please a publisher Mm-hmm. And, and in fact, there were the, the publisher totally got what I was trying to write. But there were occasions where we would disagree on something. And I was like, look, I if, if this book never gets published, it, it doesn't matter to me. Like, I don't need a dollar from this book. In fact, I'm donating all the royalties from it. it cool. it's, a, it's a real, real luxury for me to be able to do that. But there's a freedom in there. And, and in the freedom is the candor. Because I, I didn't need to please anybody, I wasn't trying to attract the attention of a traditional publisher. This is exactly the book that I wanted to share with with our team, and and I'm, In fact, I'm giving it out, you know, inscribing the copies now. It just the book just came out recently to to all the, the members of our team, and, and I'm very uh, and, and several of them are actually appear in it either by name or or as uh, as generic descriptions of people, which is which is really really cool for them.
0: But I mean, but it now becomes as as my coach, he wanted me to, to be my business card. All right, uh, you know now you walk into some th- some function and you go, well, you know, yeah, well, you know, I don't have a business card on me, but you know what? Let me give you a copy of my book. This might help you. You know, yeah. again, it's 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 a it's a platform that puts you out as an expert. All right, and and what you do so. Um, you know, I want to go. Call. I want to switch gears here a little bit on some on some some of the, some of the things you got growing up, Jeff. Um, growing up, you talked about your dad worked as a teacher and your mom in the bank. Is that right?
1: That's right.
0: All right. What are some of the lessons that dad taught you that have stuck with you throughout your life?
1: One of the ones I think it might, you have to understand. My dad he was when I say he's a teacher, he's actually a university professor, and and pretty. Um, he was, um, you know. A product of the 60s. So he's very, mm-hmm. very um, thoughtful and, and willing to question the conventional wisdom. And one of the questions that he always encouraged us to ask is what is all the achievement for? Mm-hmm. In other words, in any realm, whether it's business or it's academia or, or it's sports, it, it's very important to understand why you're doing it, you know, because if you don't understand that, you can end up living somebody else's life and in in his recommendation was to actually do the hard work of thinking through what what the whole point of this is and and that's an important reason why i in middle age actually decided i was done with the business building i mean it was really exciting and rewarding for the time we did it but after i had done it for 20 years i'd had enough mm-hmm. and i'd realized that there were other things to do in life and, and other projects and other activities that i wanted to to take on and so that question that it was always kind of in the back of my mind was was um, was haunting me <laughs> whenever I'd buy another business or start something new. And I'd say, well, to, to what end? You know, at some point, you don't need the money anymore. Right. You're just doing it um, out of habit or some kind of reflex. So so I think that that's was very useful. Another thing I, I think was very important, something that uh, both my mother and, and father shared is this um this idea of serving people in the community
0: mm-hmm. and and they did
1: it through the church we grew up in a catholic church I, i'm i'm not catholic and, and even my dad is is no longer catholic but it was it was an important part of our upbringing the social justice aspects of it making sure that that uh, those who who didn't have so much in our society uh had people looking out for them so i remember we adopted a family this was in the 70s i was born in 71 and you may recall. You may be just old enough. The, the Vietnamese boat people is what they called them. It was after the war ended, the Vietnam War, and uh, there were just a lot of refugees, and and they came. Um, you know, they were uh, relocated all all sorts of places, even rural Virginia, where we were growing up. And there was a family that that we adopted through the church, and. And uh, the stories that, that they had to tell about their experience—it was very important for me as as a young person just to see how privileged I was to to grow up in a country free of violence, mm-hmm. in a neighborhood where, where there were good public schools, and just to have a family you know that that both of my parents were—it was an intact family, neither <laughs> neither or both had been uh, had not been killed in a war, and and it was a real eye opener for me about how how I had been given so much and. And that um, maybe it'd be a good idea if I found a way in my life to give something back along the way, too.
0: That's good. That's really interesting. So, um, well, th- the other question I want to ask is, is, I mean, your father obviously influenced you. My dad influenced me as well. But I had some outside of my family mentors. One of them actually came, uh, I'm going to tell you this, a little bit of story from this that happened from that town in Tewksbury, Massachusetts, is where this happened, was I had a part-time job working at a Texaco station. And I had a problem at work. So I go to my boss and I say, this is the problem I have. And it was dealing with another employee and stuff like that. And he said, Tim, you're here at second shift from like 4 p.m. to 10 p.m. When you're here, Tim, I want you to run this gas station like you own it. If it costs a nickel out of your pocket, it's out of your pocket. It's costing you. It makes you a nickel. It makes you a profit. You run this business that way, which that became life advice for me to take ownership of everything I do. Did someone give you advice like that that's that stuck with you, Jeff, and makes you go, hmm, and it still drives you today?
1: Yeah. So one of my early mentors, the politician that I mentioned that I volunteered for in college and then ended up hiring me in his in his dealership afterwards, he had a phrase. He said, That to which you direct your attention grows. Mm-hmm. And it was a very, it was a, it was a very important lesson for me to understand that that things aren't going to happen in your life automatically. And, and you, have to go, you have to go invest in them. Mm-hmm. And, and I want to combine that with another piece of wisdom he gave me, which is as you get older, the trick isn't figuring out in life how to do more with less. It's figuring out how to do less with less. Mm-hmm. And, and the reason why I'm, I'm sort of putting these two, two observations that he shared with me in juxtaposition like that Is that as you get older, your availability of resources to invest decline, maybe your money increases, you know, that that's the easy part, but your time you have less time, you have less energy, I I regret to report at 49 than I used to in my 20s. -hmm. And, um, maybe maybe a little less even concentration power i don't i don't feel i feel wiser now but i don't feel like i have that just incredible concentration and and attention span that i used to have so these these resource decline over life and and so you have to be really choosy about where you you put your time where you put your um your life force and those are very good lessons to learn early because every day is only has only taught me how right he was true so
0: yeah wow uh, and, and it's so interesting, Jeff. I mean you know uh, that you know, I mean that's just one of the people in life and it's like that was 1988 when that guy gave me that advice and I like still every I bet, I bet every day I mention it to somebody you know what I mean and mm-hmm. like that's how much it's impacted my life all right and we carry that stuff through us for years and it goes back to I mean you know you you talked about your dad was he didn't know a business. my dad didn't own a business either he was a te- he ended up being a teacher. All right. Uh, But he was a diesel mechanic who ended up becoming a teacher of diesel mechanics. And uh, if I had to get business advice from my dad, no. My dad couldn't tell me how to run a business. He could tell me how to fix a truck, but not to do a business. And I think so many of us have to learn, all right, this is the advice we get. This is the skills we have. Let's go put them to work. And I'll bet, how many people work for your company up there in Massachusetts?
1: We're about, between all the companies, we're at like 130. 120, 130, somewhere around there. So there's 130
0: people up there right now who are very thankful that you put your skills to work and, and put a dealership out, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, sure enough. And, and I think, you know, as you're, as you're talking about this, another thing comes to mind about the importance of of your words, particularly if you're a leader of any kind, you know, whether it's in your church or your business or um, in a family, you know, as a, as a parent or, or an uncle, an aunt, a mom, whatever it is, that, that the things you say matter a lot. And, and not only the, the wisdom that you pass on, but just the way you conduct yourself, you know, can you, can you emotionally regulate in a way that when things don't go your way, can you not scream and yell and fly off the handle and cause fear in other people? You know, can you, can you keep it together and be calm so that, that you're, a, you're a safe port in a storm for others instead of, of causing them difficulty. And these are the things I guess you get to middle age and you start thinking about because you realize, wow, that people are looking up to me now the way I looked up to my mentors when, when they were my age. And, right. and that, that's a lot of pressure and responsibility, but, but I accept that. And I, I think it's, um, it's, it's a cool opportunity, too, because it just goes to show you how your words can, can travel far.
0: Yeah, they are. So, well, you know, Jeff, we got a lot of people who, who are, you know, listen to our broadcast who are, are entrepreneurs, some are entrepreneurs, some are starting, some are more seasoned. What would be a word of advice you would give to them? Maybe some wisdom that would make them want to find out more about your book.
1: One of the things I recommend to people from the very beginning, even before they open up a business is figuring out how to put love in their model and that's a term again another piece of wisdom i got from my dad mm-hmm. and what he meant when he used that term love in the model is that that human institutions should exist to to develop people and enrich people and and protect the world's resources and mm-hmm. and reduce suffering and and, uh, and serve and and that's the most important thing they can do, and even for-profit businesses, well, of course they need to make money. That's that's uh, that's what keeps them alive. But if that's all they do, they're they're really uh, at the risk of becoming wrecking balls. And and certainly, you know, businesses, private equity companies that that put the the almighty dollar ahead of every other interest, they'll they'll blow up companies and uh, you know lay off thousands of people, destroy communities, and and that cannot be the highest goal. So I think having love in the model, whether it's a plumbing company or a car dealership or a hedge fund, that, that that should always be top of mind in terms of why you do it. And and to be thinking about how you can do something beyond just padding your own pockets. Cool. Well, that's great.
0: Great advice. So, well, Jeff, I want people here who, who've listened to the podcast, both to listen to the audio and the video to get a hold of you. All right. And find out more. And what's the best website they can do that at?
1: So they can buy the book and read free chapters and see a lot of other resources that we use every day in our businesses at jeffmoral.com. And that's J-E-F-F-M-O-R-R-I-L-L.com. And if they're interested in a very unusual dealership model we have, as I said before, um, we have several non-retail businesses, but the one that everyone's heard of is Mm planetsubaru.com. And and there's a a lot about the unique approach to the car business we have there. Cool, cool.
0: Well, I mean, you know, I know this is like in 45 minutes, we only have a tip of the iceberg to get all the information, but I see there's so much more about you that I think everybody should go check you out. So, um, I, and I do appreciate you being on the show today, but, but before, before you go, I, I I got a little quiz for you. You, You're willing to play, right? I'm ready. (laughs) Nine questions, Jeff, this or that. We love to do this to get a little bit personal side of our, our guests. And uh, I always started off with this question because I like to find out who my science geeks are, and that is Star Wars or Star Trek?
1: Star Trek.
0: Okay. Were you a Kirk or, Cap- or Picard person?
1: I liked Picard because that's when I was an adolescent watching it. You know, when I was, uh, when I'd see the reruns on TV, the aluminum foil ray guns just cheese me out a little too much.
0: <laughs> uh I, 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 yeah, I know. I, I, I'm kind of both. And I know a little bit about both enough to get enough to be dangerous about either, either one. So my next question is, would you rather watch a movie at home or in the theater after, of course, after the pandemic, we all want to get out of our houses, but at home or in the theater, where would you rather watch a movie?
1: Definitely home. I'm not a germaphobe, but there's something about those soda sticky floors and in, in my thinking about all the people that have sat in that chair before I did, i just rather be at home.
0: Yeah, do you wait minute, do you have one of those fancy home theaters in your house?
1: No, no. You're actually look this this is my sort of multi-purpose room. You notice there's a TV on the wall yeah, there yeah. and that's that's where my wife watches movies. I actually don't don't watch um, movies or TV, almost none, just because I have so many other things going on. And yeah. and I, I mentioned before, as you get older, you have to figure out how to do less with less. Yeah. And yeah. that's just one of the things I jettisoned in favor of other activities.
0: So my next question here, I guess uh, I can ask, would you would you prefer to listen to audiobooks or a podcast or read a book?
1: Definitely prefer a podcast. Yeah. I, and there, I've gotten into there, it too, yeah. There's a time I, I think I can read faster, but but I just don't have the concentration anymore. I don't have the attention span to sit down and read a book.
0: Well, I mean, you said you're a bike rider. I mean, you can put you can get on the bike, you put your headphones in, listen to the podcast, you know what I mean, and and or listen to an audio book. You can get the whole thing without having to sit there and go. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. It it's very time efficient. You're right. Oh.
0: My next one here is going to be an interesting question because I found out something about you, but I think I know where this is going to go, and uh, I've already got my extra comments down here. Taco or
1: hamburger? Taco. And here's why I'm a vegetarian. So I guess if it were a veggie burger, I'd I'd like that just oh, as much. Yeah. I end up eating ethnic all the time because it's just a great way to um, Mm -hmm. to get the protein you need and and the variety. The American diet, you know, if if you just have a regular steak and potatoes dinner and you cut out the steak, it's not much of a dinner left. So I I like ethnic, you know, Chinese, Asian, um, Thai, you know, those those kinds of things.
0: Well, I mean, uh, yeah, I actually had someone on the on the show one time who was like, "I'm a vegan," and I'm like, "Have you not had vegan tacos? Have you? I mean, come on." Veg, some of the best tacos are vegan tacos.
1: Yeah, and you hardly miss. There's so many ingredients in there. I know, you know to remove the meat. Yeah.
0: You get, yeah, you you get them stuffed with all the right stuff to them. It's like you know, it's like a feast inside of a wrap. <laughs> so how about this one? Uh, are you a drinker, beer or wine? Hard liquor. Hard liquor. Okay, uh, you got to tell me, brother. <laughs> I'm 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 am you're Virginia. I'm a moonshine and bourbon guy. So yeah.
1: Yeah, I can drink just about anything and enjoy it, but the moonshine—I mean, I grew up, you know, just outside of Franklin County, Virginia, which is the moonshine capital of the world—and yep. I still, I have never been able to get even a teaspoon of that past my nose. It's just like, ah, I just can't do it.
0: I have fourteen versions of it here in my—I have in my office. I have a moonshine bar, but I have some bourbons on it. But yeah. Uh, my grandfather made it too. So, I mean, I, I, you know, I, even in Pennsylvania, they were, I mean, they've made it all over the country, but yeah, I, I love the original. I don't like all these sugary moonshines. All right. Uh, to me, when I have a bourbon, I want that good oaky to it. When I have moonshine, I want that good, you know, corn. Well, I have a, I have a triple grain out of, uh, out of Virginia, as a matter of fact. So uh,
1: that I have. So how about
0: this? If you're going on a trip, are you going to go camping or
1: stay in a hotel? definitely a hotel yeah. I like um, I like being out outdoors but I like a warm shower <laughs> my
0: wife is she wants to go camping I want I, to make camping as a four-star hotel
1: yeah no I, I agree I mean it's lovely to be outside and I spend a lot of time trail I gave up the mountain bikes after the accident but I, I do a lot of trail running and I love to really put in a hard dirty sweaty day
0: mm-hmm. but at the
1: end I like the creature comforts yeah yep so uh, how about this one? Water balloon fight or snowball fight? Definitely water balloons. I've taken enough injuries from from various hard things hitting me. I'm I'm done with that.
0: <laughs> My last two questions are the controversial ones that have started wars. This next one here: the toilet paper at your house. Does it go over on the roll or under?
1: Definitely over, like a waterfall. Mm-hmm. And the thing, this is going to well. It might not surprise, me, but I'm very operationally involved in in or was historically. I like to have things that worked well and um, to have a well-oiled machine. And I always thought that the, the toilet paper coming over the top like a waterfall made it easier to grab mm-hmm. and you didn't have to like strike the wall with your fingers and damage the drywall mm-hmm. because it was so close. So it's not really aesthetic. It's just practical.
0: It's, it's funny though, Jeff. I've had like all kinds of answers on the show and uh, the most interesting ones I have are the I interview almost everybody who's in the business world and I get these like rainbow unicorn people who are all lovey-dovey and you ask that question and fangs come out. Like it goes over, you know, it's like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That peace and love thing. You need to work on that. Everybody. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my last one. And I always love it when I get to ask a guy this question and uh, you know, boxers or briefs. Boxers. <laughs> Not that hard of a quiz, is it?
1: No, no, I enjoyed it. Usually the questions, you know, that that you experience when you're when you're talking about a a book are are uh, very, you know, they're aspirational, they're theoretical, they're Mm -hmm. philosophical. So I think you're right that when you when you ask questions like that, you can get insight into into kind of what what makes somebody think the way they do about yeah.
0: things. So. Yeah. I, I always wanted to, and I, I created this Jeff years ago when I was creating the show. All uh, right. I w- always wanted to end it on a high note and I wanted some fun into my show. And I seen somebody else doing something and I'm like, Oh, that's cool. But then I seen Sammy Hagar do it on his TV show. And I'm like, well, I'm as cool as Sammy Hagar. I can do a this or that questions. <laughs> Anyway, so Jeff, tell everybody your website one more time, both the audio and video, so they can connect with you and get to know you better.
1: Sure, it's JeffMorrell.com, M-O-R-R-I-L-L, and planetsubaru.com. Cool.
0: Well, Jeff, I thank you for being on the show today, taking time out of your schedule to be my guest. I'm honored that you came by and shared with my audience, man. I thank you.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me on and getting to share the ideas in the book. Appreciate it. Cool, cool. So to you, the guest,
0: I want to thank you guys for stopping by today and checking out our broadcast with Jeff Morrill. Please go to his website and check him out, all right? Get a copy of that book, all right? This guy's just giving you a little bit today. There's more that you need to go check him out. I'm Tim Gillette with The Tim Gillette Show, and I'll be back again with a a new guest real soon. But in the meantime, subscribe to our YouTube channel as well as where you get your podcasts. Other than that, man, it's up to you to go have a great day. Go do it. I'll see you next time. Bye.